Okay, let's uh, begin. <clears throat> I don't know if you've noticed, but I think there is uh, often a deep pathos to the human condition. And the pathos is roughly like this, that most of us search for something such as, and I do say such as because we might use different words for it, such as happiness, peace, contentment, some form of security in this life. And we search for these things. And I think there's a lot of language around happiness these days. Um, It's not a word that I particularly struck to. Um, But I think it's something that people do intrinsically, instinctively search for some degree of happiness in this life but on the, on the way we, we misplace our search for it we make demands on things to make us happy on people to make us happy we often externalise that search and uh, don't see that the wellsprings of any real contentment or happiness actually lie in our own hands they lie within us, not without us. And I think that's the deep pathos, because in trying to look without and satisfy this hunger for something, then often we actually create more pain for ourselves. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, perhaps in your own lives, when we've made a demand on, I don't know, some piece of materiality to make us happy. There's a big mythology running around which if only I had, um, I would be happy. If only I was with somebody, I would be happy. If I was only somewhere else other than here, I would be happy. And uh, this is a kind of misplaced search. There is a desperate craving for happiness in our lives. But, as I say, we put it on all the wrong objects in many ways. Desperately searching for this happiness, we, we get caught up in what I call a pleasure spiral. Yeah? What we get is not happiness, we get pleasure. Um, but pleasure is a bit like drugs of any sort. You have to in- keep on increasing the dosage um, to get the same degree of you know, kick, result, whatever you want, looking for, out of it. So... That is the human conundrum. We search for something, and we do it in a very strange way, often. And as an end, as a result of this, we end up often, and I think you have to examine this for yourself, often with states of dissatisfaction. Yeah. This was part of the Buddha's diagnosis, that actually this word which I kind of touched on a bit last night but didn't really go into this word dukkha really is an ultimate sense of dissatisfaction the world isn't giving me what I want nothing appears to to give me what I'm looking for and even if I get the the thing I desperately searched for uh, the object that I really wanted, the place I wanted to live um, even the person I wanted to live with there's a lot of dissatisfaction involved in, in this. Yeah, there's no kind of perfection with it. There's no perfect state resulting out of the acquisition of anything. And 
the Buddha was diagnosing this as well, we've actually we're overlooking the very place that we should be looking for this happiness, for this contentment, for this peace, for this equanimity in life. We look for it outside of ourselves, where actually it lies much, much closer to home. It lies right here in our hands. And the search should not be directed outside. He doesn't deny that there's pleasure in this world. In fact, there's a great deal of joy in some of the pleasure. But ultimately, it will not give us satisfaction. The search that we're engaged in is ultimately always doomed to failure. Unless that sounds pessimistic, he said that actually there can be success. There can be this awakening that I spoke about last night. There can be this liberation. In fact, this search, when it's directed externally, can often become neurotic, pathological in our search for something, someone, some place to make us happy or content. So the search in his terms takes place right here in what I spoke about today in the laboratory of your own experience. Yeah. And that was what he put great stress on, the laboratory of your own experience, the authority of your own experience. Um, right at the end of his life he's saying look to no other authorities than yourself. Yeah. Look he says, to be lamps unto yourself, you know, to illuminate yourself. This was quite radical. I mean, I think it was, a, it was radical two and a half thousand years ago. It's equally radical these days because often we look to authorities to tell us what to do, what to believe in. And the Buddha was saying, nothing other than I can show you a way, but you have to follow it. You have to explore it, and in the end, it's your experience, nothing else. And this was very empirical. In fact, his invitation to people, um, when they said, you know, they were interested in what he has to say, was uh, also very empirical. He said, "Come and have a look and see." That was all. He said it in Pali, which is "Ekasiko," just come and look and see. Yeah, that was the invitation. And so we look and see, and we look and see, partly what we try and look and see and wake up to, coming back to this theme that I was talking about last night, the waking up, coming to look and see where we misplace (coughs) our search. Now it's completely understandable that we search for happiness, that we search for peace, we search for contentment. And it's in many ways very understandable that we misplace this search, considering, continuing, considering that our societies are constantly telling us the way that we'll be happy is if we follow what you know, they proffer out as being the road to happiness, which is materiality a lot of the time. Um, one of the things we see in the world, though, is the failure of materiality to make people happy. Um, not just in the Western world, but in the world in general. I'm not talking about sufficiency. Because everybody needs a level of sufficiency to to cope with their material needs that are required in this world. But the failure of the materialistic project, I think, is there and evidenced in the escalation of depression within our societies, worldwide. The World Health Organization says in the next five to ten years this is going to be the next major health issue 
outside of cardio problems. Yeah. That's going to be that huge. Um, here's a little stunning statistic that over a million people every day hit on Google asking for solutions to problems about depression. That's every day. A million people are doing that. It's a stunning statistic. Why is that? Well, I think part of the diagnosis is why that is. That's around, and I wouldn't say totally, but part of what's involved in this is the failure of the material project because this kind of depression that we see escalating is not just affecting um, people with low incomes, very little. It's affecting those with very big incomes and lots of money with very big material um, bases for their lives. So it's not just, you know, it's not just uh, being poor. Uh, it's affecting everybody within societies, and I say globally, not just in the Western world. I think the Buddha, if he was around today, would say, well, this is completely understandable because we've thought for so long that you know, materiality was going to satisfy our craving for peace and happiness, where actually it doesn't. It's completely understandable why we think it might, um, but that it doesn't actually escalates the problem. It escalates the problem of our pain, our distress in this world. So we suffer in this world, and I mean that deliberately. We feel dissatisfied in this world. We often have difficulties that we face, and as a result of that, I think we look, if you like, to the goodies of the world as a solace to assuage those problems. We look to it to actually comfort us. I suffer, therefore I shop. <laughs> Might be a little maxim. Um, but joking aside, what we're trying to do is often assuage the pain of living, the difficulties of life, by material pleasures. And when those material pleasures don't work, it feeds into making life even more difficult. But it's almost such a habit that in sheer disbelief we keep on doing it. It doesn't produce what we want, so we keep on doing it not thinking there is another way, perhaps, to, to deal with this problem. This problem was exacerbated, the Buddha thought, by what he called craving. We crave things. We crave sensual pleasures. We be, crave people be, to become people who are somebody. Somebody with status, wealth, power, position, recognised, you know, Whatever it may be, we crave to be, and on a bad day, we crave not to be. Yeah. We don't want to really have to deal with all these problems and the difficulties of life at all. And that obviously has very serious consequences in things like suicide and depression and all the things that we, you know, we often see as spin-offs of this. There was a very great, as I say, as I started this talk this evening, there was a very great pathos contained in the original Pali word for for this craving, um, which actually is a word which is called tanha in the original language. And the word tanha, or trishna, as it is in Sanskrit, actually means an unquenchable thirst. 
That's what we have is an unquenchable thirst. It literally has no terminal point. We go on and on and on and on, trying to find something through means which can never deliver it. And the Buddha is quite graphic about this sometimes. He gives an image, a simile, of a dog sitting outside of a butcher's shop. And the dog is thrown a bone, um, which has no meat on it, uh, but is just smeared with blood. And he said the dog chews it and chews it and chews it, looking for nutrition. And, and this is a kind of simile metaphor for the human condition. Here we are chewing the same old stuff again and again and again, looking for satisfaction, looking for that nutrition that is often lacking. So this is, this is the kind of almost the, I don't know, the mouse on the wheel um, syndrome that we're caught into of doing the same old stuff again and again and again because of not being able to see other means to finding this peace, happiness, whatever you're looking for, whatever you might be striving for in this life, that allows us to rest and have a degree of ease. And I don't know whether that's something that you look for in life. I know it certainly was something that motivated me, was to have a degree of easefulness in this life. It wasn't perpetually driven um, by the kind of the winds of the winds of the world as we see them to find ease and restfulness in living, uh, to be rather than simply to do in this world. Just to be. Now, the Buddha, in his ultimate diagnosis, and I don't want to kind of depress you this evening, because I'm going to kind of uplift it towards the end, but he's saying that the the heart of this craving, the heart of this search which we can't ever really satisfy was delusion I better translate I usually translate this there's two words for it actually there's a lovely word in Pali which is actually the literal word which means delusion which is moha which means to be stupefied <laughs> you know, almost like somebody's hit you on the head with a mallet <laughs> and, you, and you're rather sort of confused afterwards and then there is avijja, which is another word which is often used to denote a similar state, which is the word which is usually translated as ignorance. And if we continue to use that word, please hear it in its etymolo- etymological sense in English, which means ignorance, you know, to ignore things. We're overlooking that. You know, often we don't know, want to know about the very things that we should know about, which are actually, if you like, the keys to unlocking the gateways to some degree of liberation from this perpetual, I don't know, as I say, the mouse on the wheel kind of entrapment that we often feel here. So we have this sense of confusion, and I think this is one of the fundamental senses that we are locked into. We are we're confused about what to do. I mean, <laughs> I don't think any of us, when we were born, got life a user's manual, did we? Um, nobody handed it to us at the right age. Um, what we got was um, parents who were often as confused as us. <laughs> and I think that's often, you know, not, this is not being pejorative about parents, but you know, everybody's trying to find their way through life, and if you're confused, well, you pass on the confusion. Yeah. This is often what happens. 
And so this path to awakening is a path of awakening from the confusion. It's awaking from the ignorance. It's, as I say, waking up to what is actually going on with us. In terms of the practice we've been engaged in, um, really the kind of key note of what we're really looking at is, is what is going on for you. What is actually happening when you sit and when you walk? What is happening when you eat your food? When you're not engaged in the formal practicing? What is going on? Are you curious about this? Are you curious about your own experience? Are you interested in what is actually happening for you? Because in a way this is central to this waking up process. You've got to be interested and curious. I was saying to some groups today, I feel my job sitting up here at the front is to try and make you curious, to infect you with some degree of curiosity about what is actually going on in your experience. But ultimately it's your experience. But the key to unlocking um, this pathway to liberating yourself from confusion is in that interest that you bring to bear on your experience. Key to all of this is not a philosophical approach. The Buddha was not teaching a philosophical approach to life. What he was teaching was a very practical way of being able to diagnose some of the problems that are there and C, being able to move out of those problems. So it wasn't simply a diagnosis to revel in the problems, but you had to get the problems clearly seen before you can start to deal with them. Um, This is often likened in the early Buddhist traditions to the Buddha as like a kind of spiritual doctor. What he does is he diagnoses the ills, says there's a cause to your illness, then says, actually, the good news is, actually, there can be an end to this. And then he prescribes a regimen back to health. And that regimen back to health um, contains a number of different factors. One is uh, the factor of ethics. And the other factor is the factor of understanding, what is often translated as wisdom, panya, prajna. And finally, um, one of the key components to this, uh, the third dimension of this path, is the meditative disciplines which includes both concentration and insight. Now, to gain insight, you have got to be interested in your experience. Insight is that which is literally helping you to understand what is actually going on, to see your behaviour. Our behaviour is happening in ordinary life so quickly, and our minds are functioning so fast, we often don't get the opportunity to see what is actually happening, do we? I don't know what it's like for you, but when you're tied up in really busy situations, it's very difficult to discern what is actually happening. So much so that we find ourselves engaging in forms of behaviour, not watching, for example, a desire arising to do something, or an anger or an irritation. What I do is I find myself, I don't know, eating something I shouldn't, or, for example, getting angry, just in a full-blown anger. This is what happens, isn't it? We find ourselves in the midst of a certain mental activity which is enacted, rather than seeing its progression, seeing it arising 
and being with it and allowing it to pass away. This is what we don't do. So, being curious about your experience and being curious about what's going on is actually beginning to look at that. To be actually be able to look in this little laboratory experiment that I've spoken about, which is you. It's nothing else um, of just being able to watch this stuff arising. I always consider the human mind to be the perfect organic recycling machine. Because it's the same old junk that comes around again and again and again. <laughs> and just often in different forms or slightly different forms, but it's usually the same stuff. However, to realise it's the same stuff, you often have to sit with it for quite a long time. You know, to realise that there it goes again. Yeah, there's those same old fears, those same old worries, those same old desires, those same old cravings. You know, here they come again. Yeah, and this is not to make you miserable. This is actually to see them acknowledgement. In some cases, just seeing it acknowledging is enough. Um, often those behaviours will be held very differently. Often those mental states will be held very differently. Sometimes, uh, a bit like spoiled children, they go to sleep if they're not paid, paid attention to. You know, they kick and scream and say, pay a lot of attention to me, please, come on, I'm a desire. <laughs> yeah. I'm a craving, you should really follow me. Um, but if you don't pay attention to it, it arises and it passes away. Yeah. So, this key to awakening that we're engaging in requires something <coughs> from you. It requires <coughs> dedication. In fact, in the early texts, it requires something called ardency. Not a word we tend to use in English very often these days. Is it being ardent about something? The word in the original language is even more specific because it's a word which is atapa. Some of you might know who have been involved in yoga, there's a word called tapas in yoga, which is usually for burning up, it's austerities which burn up um, defilements, you know, both in body and mind. And the word atapi includes that. It's the, actually the ardency to do something, to pursue something, that actually starts to actually eliminate the defilements that you have. There are three fundamental defilements that the Buddha speaks about that, um, again, it's worth examining in your own life. He said this is, this is actually um, what the world is burning with in one very famous sutra. I was mentioning it to a group this afternoon. In a very famous sutta, which is uh, a discourse that the Buddha gave, it's called the Fire Sutta, the Fire Discourse. And in that discourse he said, everything is burning, the whole world is burning, all your senses are burning with greed, aversion and delusion. Yeah. With greed, aversion and delusion. Yeah. Not just occasional things, but everything is infected by those three things. Literally, there's a fieriness to them. The reason he uses fire just as a kind of adjunct to this is it's a very important symbol in ancient India. It's uh, used in all sorts of religious ceremonies, but the Buddha was using it very specifically here to say, this is what the world is burning up with. This is what you are burning up with. Uh, interestingly, uh, he uses you know, metaphors for liberation such as cooling. Yeah. You become cool. Not cool in the way that we use it today. <laughs> but cool in the sense like a fire that's being quenched here. Um, the very word nirvana, one of the, I'll use the Sanskrit form of it, 
very word nirvana, which is often seen to be the goal of Buddhist practice, um, means gone out. It's one of the meanings of this word. It means just like a fire, when its fuel is extinguished, goes out. Well, the fuel here is the greed, aversion and delusion. This keeps us trapped into sort of cyclical behaviours. In um, Tibetan illustrations of what's called sangsara, they have this illustration which is the Baba Chakra, which is the wheel of the wheel of becoming. Here. Right at the centre of that wheel is a cock, a pig, and a snake, which represent the greed, aversion, and delusion. This is what keeps the cyclical behaviour going. Yeah. All of our unhealthy, unwholesome, unskillful psychology is rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion. Yeah. And the Buddha is actually saying to, you, you know, saying to you, how do you want to live? Do you want to live rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion? Or would you like to live a different way? And the different way is to actually have your psychology rooted in something else. Not greed, aversion, and delusion. The absolute antonyms of these. The absolute antipathy of what these represent. So instead of greed, we get generosity. Instead of hatred or aversion, we get friendliness, kindness, compassion coming in. And instead of delusion, we get, I'll use the old translation, we get wisdom or understanding. Profound understanding. And I might say an embodied understanding, just touching on the theme of this weekend in terms of the practice. And he's saying there's a choice there. There's a choice in the ways that we live. In order to free ourselves from the greed, aversion and delusion, we have to see it. We have to see it operative in our own lives. We can't free ourselves from something if we don't know it's there. Sometimes it's so deeply rooted... Some of these attitudes, these mental um, attitudes that we hold, are so deeply rooted that we don't see them. They're so close to us, we almost feel they're us. It's almost like uh, these things are almost like human nature. This is the way that we are. And the choices to make the effort to move away from states of mind which are rooted in greed, aversion and delusion into states of mind which are much more how would I say moving towards others it's interesting you kind of don't see this in English you see it very much in, in um, Sanskritic based languages and Sanskrit and Pali particularly is that when we speak about for example um, negative states of mind uh, such as you know, the, the Pali words, the equivalent words for greed, aversion, delusion, for anger, for irritation, for jealousy, for miserliness. They're all things that drive us into ourselves, yeah. into a sort of isolated self. When we start speaking about um, other factors, such as generosity, I think you can even see this, where I'm going with this, generosity, Kindness, compassion, care, uh, wisdom to a certain extent, self-respect. These are all things that lead us out into the world to actually contact others, to be with others in a genuine way. So we have this sense of being isolated as an ego self, 
or moving out into the world um, where the self is held in a much lighter way. Uh, The German philosopher Heidegger once remarked that we were most ourselves when we were caring for others, which was quite an interesting statement. However, we tend to think of ourselves, particularly in the Western world, as being ourselves when we're kind of isolated egos. Um, Interesting that the Buddha also speaks about when do we most feel ourselves? When do we feel this self as a self? Under the sway, usually, of strong desire and strong dislike. Yeah. I don't know if you notice this. When, we, when we're in the world, a lot of the time, we're kind of going around the world. There's not much of a self around, is there? Yeah. When we're just engaging in ordinary little tasks, there might be a little bit of irritation about doing it, but it's not particularly strong. However, come up against something that you really want or something you really don't want, there you are, really strongly, in those moments. And so what the Buddha is asked, offering us in many ways in this, in this path is a path to living completely differently. You know, living in different ways. In a completely um, transformed manner in this world. Yeah. But it doesn't come all at once. It's incremental. Yeah. It comes little by little by little as we gradually practice. What we're doing is we're freeing ourselves from the pathologies of habits, of certain habits, which, as the German poet Rilke once remarked, the habit that moved in and didn't leave. It's almost like, there you are as a house, and it comes in and it doesn't leave. Um, That's the habit for you. So we're encouraging our habits to leave, to depart, by beginning to see them, to be, by beginning to see them in operation. And habits are threefold. Habits are of body, speech and mind. Yeah. Habits of thought, habits of speech that we engage in, and obviously physical habits that we also have. And they're kind of all intermeshed often having their root in mental attitudes, mental approaches to the world. And so, in getting us to understand this, getting us to see it, to see it very clearly, not just fleetingly, not just glimpsing it on the surface, but really plumbing the depths of this, is a freeing experience. Now, I don't know... And I presume probably most of us have, actually. I was going to say I don't know. Probably most of us had that experience of freeing ourselves even from a minor habit. Yeah? Might be something that you wanted to give up for a long time, like a lot of people smoke or drink slightly too much or whatever it may be, or just a habit of speech that somebody's pointed out and you might do, you know, correct that or try to free yourself from it. Um, but whatever these habits are, they all usually have one taste when you let go of them. It's called freedom. Yeah. When you start to free yourself from habits, you start to get a little, if you like, mini-liberation as you go along. Well, actually, interestingly enough, that's exactly what's going on in this path. Many people think of um, nirvana as being some kind of Buddhist heaven. Well, it isn't. 
Nirvana is a state of freeing oneself. In the original language, it's a verb form. It's not a noun. It's not a state I reach, not a place I go to. It's a verb which literally can mean, it means to go out, as an intransitive verb. But it also means to unbind from something. Nir means to not do something. Vana can often mean just to bind, to tie you to something. So what we're engaging in is not nirvana or achieving nirvana, but nirvana-ing. Little nirvanas as you go through. Unbinding yourself from habitual tendencies, from habits, um, which as we all know, a habit is something we're put around, particularly if we take the mental habit down, the tracks down which the mind runs. Yeah. almost invariably you know, the, the default options often when life gets difficult even when one is trying to free oneself from them we'll go back to habit yeah. habits reassert themselves in times of crisis often um, because they feel secure they feel known they're less difficult so there's something also that is very important in this path which I think um, the word we're speaking about, which is there is a certain courage required. Because to break habits means to move out of, of kind of false security. Yeah. To move from the known to the unknown. Yeah. That's what's being encouraged. To make that step out into the unknown. Into a world that perhaps is a little bit scary because it's a lot freer. And we know habits exist on all levels of our being. From often relationships, to just simple figures of speech, to bodily habits. They exist, and we're kind of stratified habits in many ways. And so the task is recognising and freeing ourselves from them. In those little unbindings, we nirvana. And that nirvana has a taste of freedom within it. So rather than being like the sort of blinding light on the road to Damascus where you get it all in one go, (laughs) what we get is little nirvanas, which is a skill. Uh, And what, again, I've been exploring with some of the groups today is actually what's involved in this is a lot of skills training. When people read ancient texts like the Buddha's discourses, they perhaps look for words of wisdom. I often read these texts now, having read them for an awful long time, as skills training manuals. That's what they are. They're skills that the Buddha is saying, actually, if you develop this skill, you'll be able to free yourself in this way. Have a go. That's the invitation. Have a go and see if it works for you. So we're freeing ourselves from things. Remember what I was saying last night? Not freedom to, but freedom from. This is fundamental taste. The taste of this path, as the Buddha says, has one taste, freedom. The mindful attitude is one of the main components of beginning to free ourselves from habitualized perceptions, for example. We have habitualized perceptions. We see things in the same way. 
Many of you will know a phenomena um, <laughs> that seems often all too familiar, that as the older you get, the more life seems to pass by quickly, the shorter time gets. Have you had that sort of experience? Things seem to go quicker the older you get. Uh, Part of the reason for that is because you're not experiencing anything new. When you're a child, uh, you seem to be encountering lots and lots of new things all the time. You bring interest, you bring curiosity to things, and what we lose as we get older is that sense of interest and curiosity. Things almost become blindingly obvious. Uh, It often takes us to be, I don't know, taken to another culture and dumped in another culture on holiday or something to wake up, and actually two weeks can seem quite a long time, again, comparatively, when you're in a new culture with strange habits and strange customs and things like that that are happening. Um, So there's there's a kind of what I call a conditioned perception that's there which in, in some sense it seems to know everything yeah. in familiarity. Partly what this path is also about is beginning to defamiliarize things yeah. so that you can start to experience them afresh, to start to see them anew in your perception. Yeah. The job of mindfulness is to do that. You think you know your experience. I mean, who can be closer to you than you? I mean, in fact, one French psychoanalyst, Jacques Lacan, once said that psychoanalysis was a very strange business. People came to him and thought that he knew more about them than they knew about themselves. <laughs> yeah, it was a very strange business, isn't it? You know, so nobody's closer to you than you. However, because you're so close to you, you overlook so much. This is, again, part of the ignorance and confusion. You overlook so much of experience. Um, that's why some of the prompts, for example, in the meditations are so simple. They're really, really simple, aren't they? Pay attention just to the touch of the clothing on your body. Yeah, it's happening all the time. Yet until you, know, you hear, perhaps hear somebody say that, just feel the touch of the clothing on your body. You know, it then comes into the realm of awareness, which it wasn't before. I can now have a choice whether to become aware of this or not become aware of it. I have a choice whether to feel the coolness or warmth on my skin that's exposed in the air in this room. Actually, the um, writer Virginia Woolf once talked about moments of being. She wrote in her journals, and it was published eventually under a little title called Moments of Being, and moments of being weren't these profound or sort of almost epiphanies that you might think they were, almost religious experiences. She said it was the wind in her hair, you know, the touch of cool water on her skin on a hot day. These were the moments of being when you really intensely experienced something, you were really present for something in your life, really open to it. Yeah. So we have to be present for this moment to the stuff that we're familiar with, all too familiar with, and to actually begin to see it in our experience, the habits, the patterns, the neuroses that often we inhabit, the pathologies that we often have. 
so that we can free ourselves from them. But also on the other side, and I believe this is the more positive side of what I'm wanting to say tonight, we open ourselves up to experiences which are covered over by all those habitual perceptions. We open ourselves up to a whole realm of experience. It's almost like you know, I don't know, the, the kiss of Cinderella that wakes her up. You know, it wakes up life. Mindfulness is the kiss of life. It begins to wake up our experience so that we really start to see it, start to live. And some of you might be familiar with um, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. You know, in Little Gidding, for example, he said the end of all of our exploring is to return to the same place and know it for the first time. Yeah? A lovely phrase. You know, a lovely piece of poetry. That's, in a sense, what we're attempting to do here. We're not trying to get somewhere else. You know, many people misguidedly, as I say, think that you know, nirvana and the Buddhist goal is to be somewhere else. It isn't. It's actually to be here which is exactly what we're not a lot of the time. Because we're not here, um, because we're so wedded to these habitual patterns I've spoken about, um, we're off craving something in the future or often resenting something in the past, raking over our past, perhaps even looking to our past to bring our happiness, looking for stuff in the future that perhaps will make us happy, like if only I had something then I would be really content and happy. Yeah. This is actually what it's neglecting, what it's overlooking, what it's ignoring. This is again fundamental ignorance. It's, it's ignoring the present to being here. Now we, we have to think about the future. I mean, let's, let's not be unrealistic about this. We have to think about the future. We have to plan. You know, all of you have to plan to get here. You, know, you have to book in advance, probably, you know, uh, to get here. But do we have to plan continually? Because often that's what it's, a lot of modern life seems to be. It, means it seems to be continual being out ahead of ourselves. Yeah. And we don't necessarily have to be that way. We can actually sometimes just be present. Yeah. To be present for that friend of yours or your partner or whatever is saying something to you. Yeah to be present for the, the sunset or the rain, it doesn't matter, without uh, the prejudices of grasping after the beauty or rejecting what you seem to feel is the unpleasantness that's there, the cold or the damp or whatever it is. You know, to actually genuinely be present without a whole set of habitualized, conditioned prejudices which we bring to perception again and again and again. So I hope you can see the task um, that the Buddha is speaking about, but also the, if you like, the tremendous promise that life can hold for us when we begin to pursue that. And it doesn't have to be, as I say, getting it right all the time. This is not what it's about. It's making those little steps forward I'm using deliberately a physical metaphor here because we learn to walk in this way. We take little steps. Eventually they become bigger. We become more confident. We become more assured in what we're doing. We stand more upright. And actually in many ways these are all um, metaphors that could be used um, 
in terms of the development on the path. We take little steps, we become a little bit more confident, we take bigger steps, we become much, much more upright in the sense of you know, not being bowed down by the weight of what we're engaged in. And, and ultimately, of course, life is woken up for us. It really genuinely is woken up. That doesn't mean the bad things go away. Again, let's not be unrealistic about this. That stuff is going to happen. There's always stuff happening. Yeah? But perhaps we relate to it in a completely different way. You know, in a way that isn't just simply reactive. We can relate to it in a way that becomes much more responsive. Yeah? So, in a mode of responsiveness, we become more flexible, less brittle, less fragile in our ways of dealing with difficult circumstances. One of the characteristics that's spoken about in Buddhist psychology is pliancy. It talks about pliancy of body and pliancy of mind. If your body is feeling stiff and rigid, then it probably means your mind is as well. Coming back again to our theme. They talk about lightness and heaviness of body-mind. So if your mind is heavy, um, actually sometimes your body will feel heavy. There's not a lot of lightness there. If your mind is light, your body is light. So bear in mind what I was saying last night, body-mind. These are all indicators, again, of our proficiency, our basis in a degree of skill of being able to open up to living life in a different way. And when we even perceive the difficulty in the more negative dimensions of our minds, it's not to, as I say, beat ourselves up about them, not to invoke our lovely inner critic, which seems to be so well developed in the West. It's actually to start to free ourselves from this. So the investigation, the inquiry, the curiosity is in in the service of waking up. The Buddha has a very telling phrase, which is, That which one perpetually inclines your mind towards becomes the shape of your character and then becomes the shape of your life. It's quite a telling phrase. That which one perpetually inclines your mind towards becomes your character and then becomes the shape of your life. So if you think about that, if you perpetually might... just using as an example, if you perpetually incline your mind to an habitualized irritation, angriness, disappointment, whatever it might be, towards the world, well, the world does a very good job of reflecting that back. (laughs) That becomes your life. You live an angry world. You live an irritated one. I was saying this to a group this afternoon, you know, it's not the world that's irritating, it's your mind that's irritated. Yeah. However, if one lives and inclines your mind more often towards kindness and friendliness, then that too gets often reflected back in your life yeah. and becomes the shape of your life. So literally these become ways of seeing the world. I see the world through the lens of friendliness 
or I see the world through the lens of perpetual irritation. Same world, different mental attitude. And of course that comes out in almost our physical stances towards the world. With an angry, irritated mind, the body has its signature of being tense, being tight, being taut. You see it reflected in hand gestures, the clenched hand, the tight shoulders, the pain in the gut. All of these things are reflective of that. Um, Many of you have probably um, at least seen interviews with the Dalai Lama. And I only mention him because he's probably one of the most prominent figures out of the Buddhist world that's in the media. You see him being open, friendly, relaxed towards people. He has one of those unique gifts to make everybody he comes in contact with being seen and feel as if they've been seen, as if he's really contacted them. And that comes through that mental, physical attitude. So it becomes a choice in the end, is what I'm saying. There is a pathos in the human condition that we search for happiness, we go about it the wrong way a lot of the time through conditioned ways of behaviour, which we could call habits, but they don't have to be there. This is what this path of mindfulness is about. It's about freeing ourselves from that, so that we can live this life, inclining our minds in a completely different way, shaping our life, shaping our characters in a completely different way, and living with some renewed vigour in this world, whereby... Actually, nothing is boringly obvious. Where the world itself is full, it's replete with meanings and um, things that we often just don't notice through sheer habit. Okay, I think I'll finish there. (laughs) So thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.